take your Bibles and go to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6. Um, while you're turning there, Romans is the Believer's Declaration of Independence. I know that sounds a little funny, but it's our independence to walk with God. It's our freedom. That's Romans. And it's freedom from sin. Okay, so Romans chapter 6 and verse 20, it says, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you are now ashamed? Those things result in death. You know, when I uh, first became a believer, this was the first verse that I memorized. Isn't that something? It was in the King James, but it says, uh, the way it reads in the King James is, What fruit had ye in those things whereof ye are now ashamed for the ends of those things is death. And that was me, as a brand new Christian, learning to put things off and put things on. Put off the old ways and put on the new, new ways. In verse 22, it says, and now, or But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, that word slaves is probably better translated servants. Um, slaves uh, has a fairly bad connotation. The benefit, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. And that's what we're going to be talking about today, eternal life. Verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? So that's the choice to every man, woman, and child. It's simple. It's simple choice, right? At its essence, this is a question that Christianity is to ask the entire world. Will it be death or life? Death or life? If the person of the world chooses chooses Christ to pay for his sins, he will live eternally. But if that same person chooses to pay for his own sins, he will certainly meet death, eternal death. These are the only two choices. So today we're going to talk about the fruit of making the right choice, which is eternal life. Great subject. It's always perplexed me why the offer of eternal life is so significant to some, while to others, it's unimportant. One would think that when offered the choice, everyone would gladly choose eternal life. But that's simply not the case. Jesus noted this same reality in the Gospel of Matthew when he likened the kingdom of heaven to a man who, upon finding a treasure hidden in a field, joyfully went and sold everything he had to buy that field. And then he had another analogy where there was a merchant who, finding a pearl of great price, went and sold everything he had to buy it. That should be the heart of all of us who have said yes to God, that we're willing to sell and do anything and everything for this eternal life, that we should never take it for granted, that it should drive us. Even among the so-called Christians, you find this lackadaisical attitude towards eternal life. Uh, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. He said, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify of me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Isn't that something? So here is Jesus standing before the religious elders, and he's saying, look, you keep going on and on about eternal life, how you have eternal life, but I'm standing before you. I am the resurrection and the life. You see, the Sadducees who were standing there didn't believe in eternal life. And the Pharisees, though they believed in it, believed wrongly. They believed that you could achieve eternal life through the meticulous following of the law. Both of them were wrong. Go to John chapter 3. 
John 3, and in verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what? Eternal life, eternal life. I heard it several times this morning in manifestations and prayers that our God is a good, good Father. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to judge and condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That's God's heart. God's heart is that all of us might have eternal life, that we would be saved from death. Go to John 3, 35. It says, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Is it clear? Is that clear? Anyone who believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath. His displeasure remains on him. In other words, God is displeased with the entire world through Adam, through the sin of Adam. God loves the world. We just read that, didn't we? But God is displeased with the world. Go to Ecclesiastes. So we're talking about eternal life, Ecclesiastes 3. And we know that if a person accepts Christ, believes on Christ, that he has eternal life. Ecclesiastes 3, and look in verse 11. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. I love that phrase. He has set eternity in the hearts of men. This awareness of eternity is baked into mankind from the creation. It's part of us. Every cogent person who lives in this world or ever has, has this awareness of eternity. It's one of those aspects of mankind that separates him from the animal. Isn't that something? To the believer, it's one of the one of those attributes that negates the possibility of evolution. That somehow life advanced from a primordial sludge to the point where the animal thinks about eternal life. I mean, what an abstract thought. That's what the evolutionists would like you to think. As smart as a dog gets, or as smart as a dolphin or a chimpanzee might get, you will not find one of them deeply contemplating eternity or eternal life. They just won't. They can't. But mankind does. It's throughout all aspects of mankind. Unfortunately, you won't find that many humans are thinking about eternity the way they should. And that is due to the fallen nature of mankind. Mankind doesn't think about eternal life like he should because he's inherently sinful. Go to Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah 57. So God has placed eternity within our hearts. That's what makes mankind mankind. We're not just another animal. We are distinct different, that mankind was created in the image of God. We're going to read about this here. Isaiah 57, verse 15, it says, for this is what the high and lofty one says. That's talking about God. God is the high and lofty one. He who lives forever, or literally this should read, he who inhabits eternity. So God is the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So God is eternal. 
He's called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the ending, right? God is from eternity past to eternity future. And the scripture says that we are created in God's image. Mankind, as I said, is the only creature of his creation for whom God says this. So there seems to be an assumption among many that eternal life is a given, right? You talk to somebody, you say, well, what's going to happen to you after you die? Oh, I'm going to go to heaven. Really? You are going to go to heaven, and you know that how? How do you know that? Uh, because that's what somebody told me, or that's what I saw on a TV program, right? So the, the truth is, is that unless you accept Christ, you're not. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, I'm looking at verse 4. It says, anyone who is among the living can have hope or has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. Why is it that a live dog is better than a dead lion? Because that live dog can change the path of his life. You know, you know what I'm saying. There's hope for the living, right? There's hope for the living. That a person, as long as he's alive, can make that choice between life or death. He has the ability. Once he's dead... He's lost that choice. Game over. When a person dies, the deal is sealed. Verse 5, it says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. Is that clear? Dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. I was thinking about that. You know, you think, uh, you know, the way I used to think, and a lot of people, they have the same way of thinking. They have this secret wish in their mortal life that when they do die, that they'll leave behind a legacy, right? And after they die, you know, people will have good memories of them, their descendants, and they'll talk about them. And they'll say, boy, that John Touchstone was awesome. He was a great guy. And even my grandchildren, oh, my, gra my grandfather, John Touchstone, awesome guy, right? And my great-grandchildren, do you think that's going to happen? No, that doesn't happen. It doesn't happen that way. The truth is that a person, after they die, is fairly quickly forgotten. That's the sad truth of it. I own a family Bible that goes all the way back to the early 1800s of my family. And each generation, the names are recorded. And it's just, it's really amazing to see this. And generation after generation after generation. Do I know anything about these people? I know nothing. I know nothing. So in a mere, you know, maybe 200 years, their memory is gone. Okay? So when we talk about legacies and leaving legacies behind, the truth is probably not. Not much of a legacy. Your memory will be forgotten. But though my descendants might forget my legacy, God won't. If my name appears in his book of life, he remembers. Isn't that wonderful? It goes on to verse 6. Their love, their hate, and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for it is now that God favors what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil, meaning do the right thing. Live the right kind of life. Have a life that is well-lived. And how do we have a life that's well-lived? Am I going to have a life that's well-lived if I live after my passions, after my appetites? No, no, not at all. I will have a life that is well-lived if I live after God's standard, God's truth. Go to Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90, and in verse 1, it says, A prayer of Moses, a man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. 
before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. Isn't that wonderful? From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn men back to dust, saying, return to dust, O sons of men. This is what happens when we die. We turn to dust. For a thousand years in your sight, like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night, you sweep men away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. Though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. So that's how it is. I mean, mankind living, you know, this is un saved, unregenerate man lives his life for the moment, right? And I'm living life for the moment. And he doesn't realize that his life is a vapor. It says in the word, it passes by very quickly. Go to Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah 2, and look in verse 22. Isaiah 2, verse 22. It says, I'm reading the King James for this um, because I like how it translates, but it says, cease ye from men whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Now, what does that mean? Cease ye from men whose breath is still in his nostrils. The idea here is, is that mankind whose breath is still in his nostrils, that means that man is mortal. And mankind is mortal. He's temporary. And in the choice between listening to the eternal words of God or listening to the opinions of some guy who's going to be here today and gone tomorrow, I'm going to choose God. I'm going to choose what God has to say. Does that make sense? And so this notion of eternity that I was talking about, that God has set eternity in our hearts, it should alter the way we think, our perspective. We should see things differently. Our scope is much larger than that, temp that man, that mortal man, who's going to live from the time of his birth to the time of his death. We're looking at a much greater scope. This sense of eternity, rather than being ignored or dismissed, should alter our thought life, our, the way we think about things. We find way too many activist Christians who are caught up in the shifting sands of this temporal life, who never met a cause they weren't protesting for, and think that that's Christianity. It's not. Or the political Christian who is more concerned who will win the next primary than he is with his own eternal life or the eternal life of those that he meets and witnesses Jesus Christ to. We've got to keep our eternal perspective. Corey and I were talking earlier last week, and he was sharing with me this verse. It's in Luke. It says, Do not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's perspective, isn't it? Jesus is saying, look, you guys think you're spiritual powerhouses. That's not what you should be focusing on. You should be focusing on the fact that you are eternal. You are eternal. Uh, you don't have to turn there, but Hebrews 6 talks about, it says that we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, this hope of eternal life. It's firm and it's secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus who went before us, must enter on our behalf. He has become the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Isn't that great? So this notion, this eternal sense, this looking forward to the hope of Christ's return, it's purifying. It's purifying. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. See, that's one of the oldest tricks in the book, is Satan taking your eternal perspective and forcing you into thinking about our temporal lives. 
Now, of course, we we go through every day. We have things to do. I got to go and pick up my my son from school, right? I've got to go to work. These are all functionary things that we have to do. I mean, we're not talking about becoming a recluse, but we are talking about our perspective. Go to so in Isaiah forty verse one, it says, "Comfort, comfort my people," says my says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert place uh, or in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Who is this who, who this is prophesying of? Well, this is talking about John the Baptist, right? He's the forerunner of Jesus, right? Verse four, every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places, a plain. You know, we talk about equality, and and you know, to a certain degree, it's a good discussion. You know, equality that people are afforded the same opportunities. But really, life is nothing but inequalities. That's just the way it is. And the sooner that we get used to it, the better. My parents used to say, "Life is not fair." So you can sit around and bemoan the fact that life isn't fair, or you can push on and live life. The great equalizer will be in the last day, where the mountains, which represent mankind's loftiness, you know, his arrogance, will be brought low, right? The rough places will be made smooth. Verse 5, And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry out. And I said, What shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God stands forever. How about that? This is just emphasizing what I was saying earlier, that our lives are temporary. They're temporary. So as Christians, our, our lives are fundamentally different from those of the world. We put no stock in the glory of mankind. People like to sit around and go, ooh, ah, because of the latest celebrity. We're not that kind of people. Mankind doesn't impress us much. Not really. Not when compared with God. When they came to Jesus and they tried to tell Jesus how awesome mankind was, Jesus had no interest in it because it says he knew what was in man. We know what is in man. Even the best of us is capable of some just amazing wickedness. Because we are mindful of eternity, we recognize the temporal nature of things. We refuse to be ensnared by Satan's deception regarding the worth of man. We just refuse. We understand that eternity is for those who accept Christ. Go to Psalm 103. Psalm 103. And in verse 11, 103.11, it says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Remember, we were talking about compassion that God is a compassionate God, that he knows that we are hampered by our old Adamic nature, right? He knows that we have to struggle with our sin. God understands that. Verse 15, 
As for man, his days are like grass. There it is again. He flourishes like a flower of the field. The wind blows it over, and it's gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him and his righteousness with their children's children, with those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. I love that, right? So we read earlier that God himself is from everlasting to everlasting. Here it's saying God's love for us is from everlasting to everlasting. I love that, that God promises to love us for eternity. Go to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter 3, and look in verse 7. It says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Do not forget this one thing, my dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. I mean, if you are the God that is from everlasting to everlasting, time is fairly inconsequential to you, right? The Lord is is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. Now, I, I think that phrase is a wonderful phrase, right? That our God is not a spiteful God. He doesn't sit up there and, eh, I don't like how that guy looks, right? God doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the call. That's the call. That's what Paul said on Mars Hill. He said, these former times God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. What is repentance? Repentance means I was messed up and I'm turning to you, God. That's it. I don't have to catalog all my sins. I just have to turn to God through Christ. That's repentance. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, right? Beware. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, listen to this, what kind of people ought you to be? Wow, what a question. What a question. What kind of people ought we to be? Should we be like everybody else, rushing from cause to cause, right? From entertainment to entertainment? No. Do we want to be that closet Christian living undercover lest anyone mock us? Are we to waste our lives trying to preserve the status quo either culturally or politically? Or should we be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ? It goes on to say, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Isn't that something? Speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. There's a book. It's a, uh, an extended metaphor uh, called Pilgrim's Progress. And um, I've read it multiple times. And then we had the we had the kids version on tape and we used to play it to our boys. And like I said, it's an extended metaphor. And it's of this guy. His name is Christian. Right. And Christian becomes consumed with the truth of God that he's reading in this book called the Bible. And he's overwhelmed with his own sinfulness because of it. Right. Because God is righteous and he's not. And so he starts making his way. And, and it kept referring to the place where he was leaving as this city of destruction, the city of destruction. Well, we're living in the city of destruction. This is the world that we live in. It's bent on destruction. I mean, if we're not 
clear on that, you're not paying attention. In verse 13, it says, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now, how do I get out of peace with God? How do I become estranged from God? By doing what God doesn't approve of, right? The opposite is true as well. I draw near to God by obeying him and doing what's right. I'm demonstrating by my life that I love God and I love his commandments. That's the truth. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. I love that. That's Peter's endorsement of Paul, right? And what does that mean? Well, Peter was actually living with Jesus. Paul came later, but Peter endorsed Paul in his word, in the word. Go to 2 Peter chapter 1, since we're talking about Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1 and in, 10, in verse 10, it says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and your election sure. We heard a lot about that in our prayers and our discussion earlier, right? About each one of us has a ministry, uh, an ability, a God-given ability to do something unique for God, right? And the word says, it says, be eager to make your calling and election sure. That means get out there and do it. For if you do these things, you will never fall and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I told my wife I was going to say this, but I'm going to say it. Uh, everybody see the gladiator? And at the beginning, um, you know, there, Russell Crowe is, you know, the head of the Roman armies, Maximus. And he's, uh, and you've got the Germans, you know, the barbaric Germans all up, you know, getting, you know, they're up in the tree line. And the Romans are down here in Echelon. They have all the catapults ready. And, and Maximus calls his generals together. And I, and I always get goosebumps when I think about this. He looks at him and he he says, brothers, what we do here in this life echoes for eternity. Now, of course, you know, he was a pagan, but principle is the same. What we do here in this life echoes for eternity. It echoes for eternity. Go to First Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 22. That's one of my favorite movies, by the way. I love Gladiator. I've watched it over and over again. It's a great movie. Uh, so 122, it says, now that you have purified yourselves in obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. First Peter 122. Let me read that over again. Now that you have purified yourselves in obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your, your brothers. So you have sincere love, love one another deeply from the heart that we are willing to lay down our lives for each other. Isn't that wonderful? that people mean something significant to us. The word says that when another rejoices, we rejoice. If another weeps, we weep. It's not hard to be compassionate in that kind of environment, right? So it's not just having sincere love, but deep, sincere love. Jesus said that they will know you by your love for each other. That's what separates the Christians from everybody else. And, and folks, this isn't sappy love. I, I, you know, before I was a Christian, I, I recoiled at the thought of sappy religious love. No, this is genuine. I give a, you know what, for you. I, really love you with my whole heart. We're to be especially good to the household, it says, the household of faith. 
I wrote down here, uh, we've not been called to be bookworms for Jesus. You know, there are people who think that, well, as long as I open my concordance once a day, I've done my religious duty. No, you haven't. The evidence of your discipleship should be in other people's lives around you. You should be able to see the impact of your life by looking at those who are around you. I think that's important. Um, we were talking about this at the recent board meeting. Um, Gary Corns noted that we... Uh, the word says that we ought to be provoking one another to love and good work. You know, I, I love that use of the word provoke. Most of the time you're, you know, when you hear the word provoke, you're thinking provoking somebody into an argument or provoking somebody into a fight, right? Here we're provoking people into love and good works. That means that we put a challenge before people. And then he said, you know, I just tell people, get out there and do something. Do something. As you take the action, even if it's not the right action, if you're doing it for the Lord, the Lord will work in you to self-correct. It'll be no time at all before you're doing that right thing, because God works in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. That's what the word says. He will work in you. But you've got to step out on your faith. Too many people sitting around saying, well, I'm waiting for a sign from the Lord. You're, you're never going to get it. Not that way. Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are as grass. Here it is again. And all their glory is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is a word that was preached to you. So inherent in this message that we give to people is this notion of eternity, that the world is temporary, it's temporal, it's here today, gone tomorrow. But what we're talking about is eternity, and the things that we do in this life will echo in eternity. We will be rewarded for these things. This means that as a true witness of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be called upon to endure unflattering things like persecution at times, ridicule, humiliation, and even death. I think we ought to be very clear on that. There are people in uh, Christian brethren of ours in Africa who are being killed for their faith. That's not something we necessarily worry about in this country, but we may sin. But, you know, I don't particularly like being ridiculed or humiliated. I don't know too many people who do. But there are times where we have to endure it for the faith. Well, it's a small price to pay, isn't it? Uh, so this is the sword of Damocles. And the reason I put this up here was um, uh, that there is a, a preacher that uh, preached back in the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. And uh, he was one of the greats. He was an Englishman and uh, just an amazing preacher. And I wanted to read something that he he wrote. You know, I think about the Apostle Paul and I think about that um, life wasn't a cakewalk for him. So I'm going to read this to you, and uh, you guys just keep your eyes on me. I don't. That's uh, I'm moving around here. Um, it says Damocles, the flatterer, announced Dionysius, the king of Syracuse, as the happiest man on earth. The king, in order to convince him of his mistake, invited Damocles to a banquet and caused him to be robed and treated as a king. During the entertainment, a sword was hung suspended by a single horsehair from the ceiling over the head of Damocles. 
and thus was typified the happiness of a king. All right, so in the picture you see Damocles relaxing on his couch and everybody's serving him wine and, and it's a sumptuous banquet. And above him, and you've got Dam- you have uh, uh, Dionysius standing behind him and then you have this sword hanging, pointed down at him. It's, uh, it goes, the unconverted sinner beholds, behold thyself in this picture. Thou fanciest that thou art happy. Ah, thou art woefully deceiving thyself. Thy pleasures are short in duration. Thou art clothed in borrowed garments of vanity and art seated at the banquet table of thy pleasures with the sword of divine judgment suspended over thine head by a slender thread. Any moment thou mayest be cut down by the hand of death and be hurried all unprepared before the judgment seat of Christ. Oh, be no longer blinded. But turn thine eyes upward and see thy danger. Know that thou art a sinner, quote, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 2, 3.23. As a sinner, thou art already condemned. The curse of God hangs over thee, and in a moment thou mayest be in the grave. Turn off thine eyes from sin and self, and look unto Jesus, who is now both able and willing to save even thee, if thou believest on him. When the sinner believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, he is made by sovereign grace a king and a priest unto God. He is arrayed in the best robe, the imputed righteousness of Christ. He is enabled by faith to sit down at the king's banqueting table, whereon are spread the daintiest dishes, and a feast of wine, Instead of the flaming sword of justice, the banner of Jesus' love hangs over his head. Such is the royal provision made by the Jehovah of hosts for every poor and needy sinner who by simple clinging faith trusts in his dear son, whose precious blood cleanses the vilest from all sin. May infinite love glorify itself by admitting you to the marriage feast of glory. Isn't that wonderful? That's what I wanted to share with you guys today. And uh, let me finish up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. And we thank you, Father, for the choice. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity. And Father, that we can spend eternity with you and with your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for that choice that we are willing and able to help people come to that choice. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that, that we can look beyond our our uh, temporary life. We're not blinded by technology or by science necessarily. And Father, that we are looking beyond all that to the spiritual realities of creation and eternal life. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for what a good God you are and blessing us as you do. In your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Something more for something more than we could ever imagine. There's so much more.